and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, let's see your Bibles if you have them. All right, looking good out there. Go ahead and turn them to Colossians chapter 2. We've made it through chapter 1. We're in chapter 2 now. And as you're turning there, also look at the back of your sermon notes. On the back of your sermon notes, you have pictures of two early Greek manuscripts of Colossians. And so the top one, it would be 1,700 years old now. And the bottom one there would be 1,800 years old now. Ancient uh, copies of Greek manuscripts. The one on top is from the early to mid-300s and comes from the Codex Sinaiticus, which is one of the earliest surviving entire copies of the Greek New Testament. And do you look at it there, you can see it's in all caps... If you, you don't know your Greek, but uh, some of you do. But it's in all caps. There's no spaces between words. And you say, Danny, why is that? Because they didn't have a lot of paper back then. They didn't, wa- they didn't waste any. They put it together. No vowel points in there, no nothing. It's just together in there, you know. The precious word of God. And the smaller thumbnail below it is a fragment. He's got it up there now. Is a fragment of the Colossians text from A.D. 200. And I just absolutely love the fact, I love the fact that we have tens, uh, we, I mean, we have thousands of Hebrew and Greek fragments and manuscripts of the Bible that have survived to this day. So you'll get a, uh, by the 300, you have entire copies of the New Testament. They already had entire copies of the Old Testament in Hebrew and translated into Greek language and things like that. And then uh, those early Greeks, sometimes you just, because of the way the paper has crumbled over the years, you just have a, a word, a verse, to a paragraph, to a, an entire book, and those different things. And it's great. It's like be, being in a, a spiritual onlooker and looking at those manuscripts and things. It's kind of like putting the puzzle pieces together And when you put it all together, we have 100% of the entire perfect, beautiful Word of God. It's so cool. Now, the number grows to tens of thousands of manuscripts uh, when you add in the Latin early translations uh, that uh, from 400 onward when the Catholic Church had uh, monks and things that were, you know, copying zealously the Word of God. And they also cared about education, so they became the great universities. They were copying all the other things they could get from Greek antiquity too. And so, uh, you know, the, the world that loves its Greek learning knowledge needs to thank Christian monks that also copied all those things because they had the ability to do so. But their purpose really was to keep copying uh, the Word of God. Uh, Now you'll also maybe notice that the writing has no chapters or verses there. You don't see chapter headings and verses there. Cardinal Hugo 
put chapter divisions into the Latin Bible in A.D. 1250. So for the first thousand plus years of the church, they, did, they had uh, Latin or whatever they had before them. They did not have chapter divisions. Uh, Robert Estienne produced a Greek New Testament with verse divisions in A.D. 1551. So for the first 1500 years, you couldn't say turn to Colossians 2.1 because it, there was chapters after 1200, but not verses yet. The first entire English Bible to have verse divisions was the Geneva Bible in 1560. Now, there are some people that say the King James is the only English translation to use, but early reformers like the ones we talked about uh, today with the Reformation, their first Bible was the Geneva Bible that is happened 51 years before uh, the King James came out. And of course, the King James, what a wonderful translation with its beautiful language and those things. But the point is, every modern translation, every translation period comes out of what was first Hebrew and Greek into Spanish, into German, into English. By the way, do you know there's some Germans that get ticked off because people want to use modern German language to instead of Martin Luther's translation from the 1500s. Isn't that funny how uh, all debates are local sometimes? But anyway, I love the Bible. You love the Bible? Well, then let's sing about it. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, Bible, amen. Well, we have a wonderful Savior in Jesus, and we've got the perfect Word of God, the inerrant Bible. So from the earliest days of Christianity all the way until now, false religions have seen all the disciples that Christians were making, and as they shared the gospel and as they preached the Word, and they were impressed, and false teachers said, I want in on that action. There's more following them than following me. Do you know there's something very interesting, and Gary Habermas up at uh, Liberty University has done a great job showing the world this. You can also see it in a book like Person of Interest by J. Warner Wallace. He has documented this very well, and it's easy to read. Person of Interest, J. Warner Wallace. But there are many ancient religions that go back to before Christianity, but many of their elements practiced today actually were changed after Jesus came because the Krishna folks said, we need to have our own version of a rising God and a God that would suffer and die and a God born of a virgin and those things. And so the religions predate Christianity and what the Bible teaches us, but often later on added in elements to mimic Jesus Christ. And false teachers want to hook you by saying, we're Christians too, or we agree with that, and then take you and down a wrong path and turn. So they've often co-opted Christian teaching and twisted it to try to sway people into following their religion instead. For instance, you may have heard of Druidism. Druidism. Um, and here's some information from a man named Ben Johnson about Druidism. Druidism can be described as a shamanistic religion. Now, you've heard of shamans. Shamans, Africa would call them witch doctors. Asia would call them shamans. We've got a lot of New Age teachers that are talking about connecting with the spirit world and doing seances and the occult stuff and things like that. Uh, Oprah Winfrey promoted a lot of that kind of uh, mystical 
otherworldly connection without it being a biblical faith, and she's continued to do that. And lots of people are still listening, and it doesn't square with biblical teaching. But it's a shamanism religion. It relies on a combination of contact with the spirit world and holistic medicines to treat and sometimes cause illnesses. You know, a curse can be put on somebody or something like that. Druids were said to have been accurate fortune tellers, and uh, a lot of people are fascinated by fortune tellers, some people very close to me, and it chagrins me that they got taught better and they're now consulting horoscopes and astrologers and things like that. Some of those things were going on in Colossae. But for Druids, their pattern of life follows nature cycles. They loved old oak trees with big roots. They observed lunar, solar, and seasonal cycles. Their New Year celebration was and is called Samheim, celebrated on October 31st each year. I tell you about the Druids because in England, when the gospel of Jesus Christ got to England, it changed everything. Druidism is an ancient religion, but Druids in vast numbers heard of Jesus and turned to Christ and were saved, and England became one of the epicenters of glorious Christian faith and a missionary sending nation, and it was so wonderful and powerful. And I'm bringing you a point here where I'm going to show you the quote that you have, I think, in your notes there. So what a surprise when in 1871... It's not a surprise. But in 1871, a manuscript was printed in London purporting to be from an ancient copy of the book of Acts. And this copy included Acts chapter 29. Now, if you know your Bible, you know Acts ends at chapter 28. It's got Paul in Rome awaiting imprisonment, and we don't know anything after that. This supposed legitimate manuscript told about Acts chapter 29. They had supposedly gotten it from a French man who said he had access to the original Greek copy, but has never produced it, has never produced this particular uh, version of the book of Acts. Well, what is Acts 29 about? It tells about how Paul, after his time in Rome, he made a trip to Britannia, Britain, right? England. He made a trip to Britannia where he met with the Druids who showed him what they do and convinced him they really were a lost tribe of Jews who therefore had okay beliefs. What is it with cults and the lost Jewish tribes and trying to identify themselves as this Jewish tribe or that Jewish tribe? You know, Joseph Smith did the same thing within Mormonism. He said ancient Indians that were along the West going down into Mexico and beyond were actually Jewish people. And of course, DNA has said that is not possible. Uh, and so, you know, not only is there no archaeological evidence to back up the Book of Mormon, uh, the DNA actually refutes the Book of Mormon in those things. And so you've got a false prophet, and Mormons follow a false prophet. So they accept some scripture. They say, I'm a Christian like you are. They change terms and definitions, and that's what was going on in Colossae too. Look what the Druid, uh, this uh, Acts 29 said in the fraudulent Sanini manuscript. And it came to pass that certain of the Druids came unto Paul privately and showed by their rites and ceremonies that they were descended from the Judahites, which escaped bondage in the land of Egypt. And the apostle believed these things. Paul believed them, and he gave them the kiss of peace. In other words, you're all right as you are. Talk about Jesus some, and everything will be great. We can syncretize these religions together. And as we go to teach pastors in Africa, one of the problems in Africa is how much syncretism of the old, ancient, non-Christian ways get somehow adopted into the faith and become part of the ceremonies. And our friends in the Roman Catholic Church have been notorious for that. And so thank God that the Roman Catholics are more and more reading their Bible because I know 
several personally who say, you know, I see my church teaches this, the Bible teaches this, I choose the Bible instead. And I said, good, keep on going, you know, because it's all about having a biblical faith. Well, I don't know how many people have been fooled by Druids over the years, but as great a man as Sir Winston Churchill, the great prime minister of England, was supposedly had Druid ties. Today's text lets us know that the Apostle Paul himself wrote to try to prevent Christians from succumbing to uh, such lies. So hopefully you made it to Colossians 2 already. Verses 1 through 5 we're going to read. Paul writes, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face, all I haven't met, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you. It's true. No one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The struggle is real. Let's pray. Father, thank you. I my heart so full with the time of singing we've had, God, and despite all the challenges that we face in life and in the church and in the community and in the world, God, we understand what we learned a couple of weeks ago, that no matter what year it is here, it's always the year Jesus is reigning in heaven and one day will reign on earth. God, we thank you for what Paul writes here about his own personal struggle, exerting himself uh, and encouraging uh, believers to stay true to the faith, to not depart, to not divert, to not detour away from the precious truth of the Word of God. Lord, I pray that we will own that struggle ourselves today, Lord God, not only to uh, be right with you ourselves and be committed to walking according to the truth of your Word, but also to exerting ourselves in prayer and in teaching and in relationship with others so that uh, we can present every man mature, perfect in Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we're going to look at three points from this text. The first one's there from verse 1, and that is that we must exert ourselves to help believers get it right. We must exert ourselves to help believers get it right. In verse 1, Paul says, I want you Colossians to know how great a struggle I have for you. And the word for struggle there is the word agno. Can you hear agonize in there? The word is used in the New Testament of the exertion made during athletic contests in an arena. It's the word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 6 and 2 Timothy 4 when he talks about how he's fighting the good fight of faith. It's the word used in Hebrews 12 to talk about uh, finishing the race, this marathon of life that we're in, finishing the race strong. Um, Paul's saying that inside of him there's an MMA fight going on. Inside of him there's a, there's a marathon or trying to finish the race who's exhausted from doing that. And, and, and he has that inner fight going on for the people that he hasn't even met there in Colossae. He had not been there personally. Their neighboring city of Laodicea. And for, yea, all those he's never seen face to face. And of course that includes me. I've never seen Paul face to face. But he was struggling to get it right in his generation so we'd get it right in ours. That's what was happening. He knew they were, are, they were, there was dangers of giving in to wrong ideas about Jesus, wrong ideas about how you are saved, wrong ideas about yourself as a sinner, and everything else that really matters. 
And we face those same struggles today as we seek to get it right from the Bible as we do churches. You know, uh, it is a wonderful thing to be encouraged and counseled by others. And yet increasingly churches are turning to a therapeutic faith that just wants you to make, make you feel better about continuing to sin rather than challenging you to repent of your sin, turn to Christ, and seek holiness in your life from that point forward. I wonder if anybody here cares that much about Christians you've never met before. As you hear about the missionaries, as we tell you about them, and, and, and others and the work at uh, another sister church or a place down the road, when you hear about them, do you care enough that you could say you're exhausting yourself in prayer for them and making sure they're resourced to get the faith right? I wonder if we even care, many of us, about our own walk that much. Do we care that we get it right and that those that are in our church get it right and those that we love get it right? Are we pouring ourselves out like that? Remember that fighting the good fight that Paul talks about is in the context of him saying, I have poured myself out. I was a full cup and now I'm a cup emptied out. The last drops are coming out. He was talking about right before he died. And he says, I put it all out there for you. And here he's telling the Colossians that. Now, this is about prayer, but Paul means much more than that. It's the, all the intense exertion he puts in to help people get from where they are to where God wants them to be. We find people here, God wants them there, and in every interaction with them, we're either helping them be on their way to what God wants for them or pushing them away, pushing them away. And he is so serious about that. Now, Paul wasn't being boastful about his influence. He was and is an important apostle of Jesus Christ. It, what, what he was saying was, this is what my life is about. My love for God compels me to love you enough to want you to get it. Think about the great Keith uh, Green song from days gone by. It's only that I care. He sang it to his parents. He knew the Lord they didn't. It's only that I care. It's only that I want to see you there. And... Um, no one today is an apostle like Paul, but we all have a sphere of influence. We all have people that we influence. And when we know we are influencing people, we should remember them in prayer, encouragement, and exhortation. And we never know all the people we're influencing. Uh, a dear couple in our church have a grandson that they gave a copy of my testimony CD. And it encouraged him as he was thinking in terms of serving the Lord. Now he's a student at Southeastern Seminary and growing like wildfire and influencing others. And Mike Young told us about him yesterday and his interaction with him. And isn't it neat how that all works out? It's one of the reasons why I keep prayer cards. Uh, this is my A to Z prayer cards. Uh, so your names are on here. And uh, the names of uh, people I've pastored in the pastor on here, I do it by family. So there's family cards here. And I try to, when I'm in the office, pray for a letter if I can. And on the plane there, the plane back, and probably in Africa, I'll pray for you guys and all these folks and guys I know they're in the ministry and others I've uh, come into contact with over the years. I don't want to forget. And you've got your own sphere of influence. And it might not be three by five cards for you, but do you have a way where you regularly pray for the people in your life, the people you minister to, the people that have been touched by you and you want to see God do a work in? There are some super saints in here. There are some very much struggling sinners in here. There are some struggling saints in here. There are some very good non-Christians who don't know Jesus yet and their, their, their goodness is standing in the way of them knowing that they're still a sinner before a holy God. But they get prayed for they get prayed for, and you pray for people too. It's, it is about a prayer list, but it's more than that. All the exertion we make. Paul was 100% committed to exerting himself in effort to help others grow in Christ, and I hope I model that for you. 
I hope I model that for you and your Sunday school teacher does and we model that for each other. So many of you encourage me like that and I, you know, one of the highest and best things you ever say to me is, Pastor Danny, I'm praying for you and I need it. And thank you for that. Thank you for that. What, a, what, what an awesome privilege it is to be prayed for by you and to pray for you. Well, Paul's concern must have been well-founded because 30 years later, when the book of Revelation was written, the Colossians church, which was an Asia Minor church, didn't even merit a letter from the Apostle John. Had they disintegrated? Had they disbanded? We don't know. But we do know Paul wrote seven letters and they disbanded. We know he wrote one to Laodicea, but what he says is one of the biggest rebukes in the book of Revelation. We know they needed this letter from Paul then. And uh, Paul's admonition here turned to... Uh, Revelation for a minute there, and let's look at what he says to the Laodicean church. Try to say that real fast, right? Revelation three fourteen. Paul says, or John says, sorry. John says what Jesus told him. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works; you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. They thought they were okay. He says, you're paupers, spiritually speaking. They were fine just being go with the flow. They were cold. They were lukewarm. They weren't shaking their fist at God. They wanted people to think of them as good Christians. Uh, But they were not hot for the faith. They were not hot for the Lord. And Jesus said, I I just just soon spit you out with this game of disingenuousness that you're playing. Paul, writing to Colossians, said, I want you to know. I'm exerting myself so you go on with the Lord and you become all that you can be. We must exert ourselves like that. And it's such a shame that it appears that the next generation in Colossae and Laodicea may not have gotten that. Well, the next point we have is from verses 2 and 3. We must encourage believers to treasure Jesus Christ. What a treasure we have in Jesus Christ. What was Paul praying for, teaching for, exerting for? He tells us in verses 2 and 3. He wants believers everywhere, look what it says, to be encouraged in their faith to be encouraged, that their hearts may be encouraged, and then being knit together in love, knit together with other believers in love with Christ. And to know at the deepest personal level to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He wanted them to know all that they were in Christ. It so encourages me to think about how beyond our wonderful Sunday school classes and ministries that we have to youth, men's women, and uh, senior adult ministry and all the different things we have in between. It encourages me to know how many breakout groups are happening right now uh, where people are talking about reading in places like Ephesians you know in chapter 1 when it says if you're a Christian all that's true of you now that you're in Christ there are riches there right you know the world is being crucified by between two thieves their regrets about yesterday and their fears about tomorrow but for the Christian the only two days that matter are the day you were saved because in that day you were transferred as we've learned in Colossians from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son the kingdom of Jesus And for the rest of your life, you're going to be learning what happened the day you were saved and all that's true of you now as a saint. And the second day that matters is today, the difference you can make with the Spirit of God empowering you to take the Word of God and apply it. 
And so Paul wants them to know all about that. The word for encourage there is the word parakaleo. And it's in the same word family as paraclete that some of you have heard. You might recognize the word that Jesus spoke to his disciples when he said, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send the comfort of you, the Holy Spirit, the counselor. That's the word paraclete. He's going to come alongside of you. Yeah, he'll be in within you, and he'll help you live out the truth from the word of God from within. That word is also used of Jesus himself in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Let's see it here. Little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We've got a paraclete, not a parakeet. We've got a paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the one that comes alongside. And Paul says, I want what I say to you to be encouragement coming alongside of you to know who you are in Christ, to know what you've got in him, and to stop messing around with all these, those that say you need more. I like that song that's on the radio right now. Jaira, you are enough. Sing it because it's true. He's enough. Well, false voices tell you you need more, you need different. They minimize Christ rather than magnify Christ, and you want to avoid that kind of teaching like the plague. You also want to make sure that in your worship experience, whether it's as an individual or as in a church, you're truly magnifying Christ and not just in it for what Christ can do for you. He wants to counsel you and grow you, but he's not there just to be your cheerleader as you do sinful things, right? He's the Lord, not you. And you got to get that straight. He is God, and we're not. We're not. Okay. Well, uh, next he talks about this word for knit together. And it was also used of when things were welded together. Some of you can weld, and it's a really cool thing, right? Welded together. And he wants us to be welded together around this truth of God, around this word of God. It's the same word in Colossians 2.19. Look at it down further in the chapter in 2.19. It talks about you don't want to be among those who don't hold fast to the head, from whom the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished, and there it is, knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that's from God. Grows with a growth that's from God. We are growing together in Christ as we seek his face together and get into the word. Now, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. Again, the word fullness. In this case, full assurance or full conviction. Understanding was a word you just speak of things flowing together. Flowing together. I think of the satisfaction I've always gotten doing a puzzle. You know, you've got the basic outline there and you kind of know. And, and at first it's a little disorienting, but you get those, that, that border done and then you get the pieces put in and, and you're making more and more progress. And you might be a new Christian here and you're saying, my goodness, uh, I, I, there's so much I don't know yet. But every time you learn something, you're filling in puzzle pieces and, and, and you're maturing as you do that. And the puzzle is more and more becoming play. Don't worry about what you don't know. Just keep learning learning, keep growing. And it's about Jesus. It's about what he, who you are in Christ and what he wants to do in and through you. So that's what should be happening in your growing knowledge of biblical truth. Things you didn't understand before should be falling into place as the knowledge about Jesus you're obtaining flows together. You're hearing things in sermons from the pulpit here. You're hearing things in your Sunday school class. You're in your own personal Bible reading, and you are uh, hopefully reading good Christian books. We've got so many good Christian books in the church library. Christian radio and media and podcasts, all these different things. They all need to be evaluated according to the Word of God, but what great resources. We're embarrassed with resources in our day. What a wonderful vision Paul has for us to become all that we can be in Christ. And he had exerted everything so they'd have that kind of encouragement. I remember D.L. Moody often recalled the challenge made to him by a British evangelist. 
Moody, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man or woman fully consecrated to God. And Moody heard that from that evangelist, and he resolved in his heart, by God's grace, I'll be that person. I will, I will be all out for Christ. And I know I'll still have to confess sin. I know I'll still mess up. But I want to make the difference that God has for me to make. Amen? Amen. God, won't you consume the dross in my life the way you do when fire, when gold gets submitted to fire? God, won't you refine that gold in my life with your refiner's fire? And what will bring full understanding? It's, he says it here, making it all focused on Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. What's this knowledge, this wisdom focused on? Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everyone here probably wants more knowledge. You want more wisdom and understanding. Christ is all of those things for us. And so to pursue him, to gain him is everything. That's why Philippians 3, Paul said, I count everything in the past. All my accomplishments, all my learning, I count that as dung. I count that as crud compared to knowing Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know that his spirit inside me means I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Amen? Amen. Tony Evans says, knowledge is the comprehension of the truth. Wisdom is the application of the truth. And when you put that together with what Paul says here, if you get Christ, you're going to get wisdom. If you follow Christ and get into his word, you'll be wise beyond your years. I remember people said that about me far earlier in my life than it should have been said. I associate that mostly with gray hair. And I'm like, well, why did that come? As a young believer, somebody said, Danny, read the proverb of the day every day. There's 31 days of the month and uh, there's 31 proverbs. So if you sometime during the day read the proverb and apply what's in there, you'll be wise beyond your years. And I said, well, I want to be wise beyond my years. So I started doing that. And people started within a couple of years saying, Danny, you're wise beyond your years. I was like, really? Um, I still feel like a knucklehead. Elizabeth says Danny is a knucklehead. But sometimes I appear wise, honey. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't get your relationship with God right and, and be in honor and awe of him, you'll never be wise. You may be wise the guy in the world's eyes, but you'll never be truly wise in heaven's eyes, right? You get Christ. You seek him. That's why 2 Corinthians 4.7 says, we have this treasure where? In jars of clay. Hat tip to 80s bands. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The false teachers taught that only the spiritual elites who listen to them can really get knowledge that they would impart to you as they go, kind of like masons have 32 degrees of masons. And uh, I don't know if you're a mason. I wish you weren't. Uh, they call the leader the worshipful master, and they've got this secret thing going on in 32 degrees and other things like that. It's very much the kind of thing that happened among the secret wisdom teachers in Colossae and places like that. No, no, a thousand times no. God can be fully known through faith in Christ by everyone, not just spiritual elites. You know, religions like Buddhism have monks, and they are so different than the people. But the Bible teaches that if you're here today and you're lost and you turn to Christ, the moment you turn to Christ, the Holy Spirit will take up residence in your heart. You'll have everything Billy Graham had that very moment. You have the Holy Spirit inside. You've got the Word of God to guide you. And if you'll share that faith and love with others, God will use that. And so if you're a faithful disciple, he'll bear the fruit that he wants to through you. And it's so wonderful to think about that. That's why... Peter joins Paul in 2 Peter 1, 3. He says, God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Isn't that great? 
Hey, you got everything you need to live this life, folks. You got everything you need it's pertaining to godliness and to be all that he's called you to be. We're not saved by understanding everything. We are saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen? And the next believer that's born again, many times new believers do what? They put old believers to shame, right? Because they're clinging to Christ. They're trying to seek him. They're excited. And they, it, it takes some us throwing water on their enthusiasm, right? Oh, well, you're not supposed to be that excited. <laughs> Sometimes a little child, in the innocence of child, they'll be talking to the dentist and the doctor and everybody they meet. Do you know Jesus? And their parent who's a Christian says, shh, be quiet. Why should he be quiet? Just ask the most important question that dentist needs to hear. Do you know the Lord? Are you going to die and go to heaven or are you going to die and go to hell? And we've learned, oh, Leave that there. And young believers go, man, oh, I know as I was lost, I'm fine, I found, I, now I'm found, I was blind, now I see, and I want everybody to know Jesus like I know him. Finally, verses four and five, we must exhort believers to escape false teaching. Now, when I come back in a couple weeks, uh, not this Sunday, but next, we'll talk more about that from verses six to 10. Paul gets specific with them, and it parallels some of the things we have in our day too. But we must exhort believers to escape false teaching. Verse 4 says, I say this in order that no one may delude you, deceive you with plausible arguments. And I really need to camp out on those two words for a minute because the word delude is paralogizomai, and it means to reckon wrong, to deceive by false reasoning. So someone's putting false ideas on you. They are deluding you. The word for plausible arguments that's here in the ESV, it's pithanologia. It means, you can pith, can you hear that? Pithy logos, logos word, pithy words. Pithy words. Don't let people deceive you with nice sounding words and phrases. Pithy words, good words. It means to talk someone into something. Who does that remind you of in the Bible? All the way back to the Garden of Eden, Satan using pithy words and deceiving Adam and Eve, even Adam, and convinced them to do that which would not be in their best interest. He was telling them it would be but it wasn't. And when they chose the sin, it brought disastrous consequences into the world. I've heard the great phrase Lamar used to say to you, those that go back to Lamar's days, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. You can be a knucklehead and be a Christian and sin against the Lord and do sinful things, but you can't choose to, what your consequences will be. Some seem to get away with it, but you won't over time. You've got to confess it and repent. But some of you, almost immediately, disastrous consequences. You can choose your sin, you can't choose your consequences. Satan presents wrong as right and entraps sinners in his snares. Isaiah said that there'd be a generation, woe to the generation that calls what's good bad and what's bad good. Sin takes you further than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay and it costs you, oh my, more than you were ever willing to pay. John 8, the second part, Jesus said, when Satan lies, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. What are you doing listening to lies? John 10, 10, the thief comes to kill, steal and destroy. Jesus said, but I have come, they might have life and might have it to the full. Lies sound reasonable, but they're still lies. Folks, watch out 
for well-presented lies that come through music, movies, social media, etc. I remember being a sophomore at Bryan College. I was so excited to be a Christian. I was growing in the Lord. I'm walking on the campus there at Bryan, and I'm saying, I'm starting singing that Bull Billy Joel song. They say there's a heaven for those who can wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Sinners are much more fun. Only the good die young. But, but as I was going, it was really like this. When I got to that last part, I was, sinners are much more fun. Only the good die. And for the first time in my life, I thought about that song. I rewound the words in my mind. And I said, I don't believe that anymore. This song is about a guy trying to get a Catholic girl to lose her virginity. And I don't believe that anymore. It's a well-presented lie. Now I know my virginity is a gift that I want to give to my spouse on my wedding day if I can. And, and, and if I've made a mistake, I don't want to, uh, I wouldn't, after losing one finger, say, okay, let me just lose another one. <laughs> you know, until I have nothing left. I want to get it right now and go forward with all that God's got for me. And so you need to be ready to respond to those lies. I, it happens all the time on TV, doesn't it? it? There's a show on. It seems innocent enough. You fall in love with the characters. You like how it's presented. And then about midway through the season, they start bringing all the stuff in. Our great characters are going to tell us about how homosexuality is okay or transgender uh, is, is okay uh, and that sort of thing. And... Uh, you know, at some point in there, you have to say, Here, they're, they're, here's the manipulation that we warn ourselves about. And Elizabeth and I more than once have said, this is the end of watching that show. And of course, it happens in movies all the time. People are basically born good. Well, the Bible says that because we're created in God's image, we have an instinct when things are wrong and right in our head somehow. God's using our conscience. The Holy Spirit's using our conscience. But no, people now, because of sin in the world, are born separated from God by their sin, and they're inclined to not choose the good, not choose what's best for them. That's why Jeremiah the prophet said, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? The society and culture and these well-presented lies say, trust your heart. Scripture says, don't trust your heart. Trust God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. What's the next part? Oh, that was good. Let's do that again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. There it is. So what do we labor for instead in those we hope to influence? Verse 5 tells us, Paul says, I rejoice to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. They're both military terms. Taxis equals a, is the one for um, orderly arrangement there, your good order, and it's used in the military sense of rank. It's the same word as 1 Corinthians 1440 uh, that Ronnie Motley sends out on his prayer list, that all things must be done decently and in order. Same word within the church, we're to do things in an orderly way, in a right way. The word firmness is a solid front, a united front, a fortified front. It's picturing soldiers walking together, the line not breached, together doing their part. It's like when Nehemiah built the wall. Each family had a portion of the wall that was theirs to keep. And in church, in stewardship, in ministry, in all the different areas, there's a portion of the wall that's for you and your family. And when we do our part, there's no breaches in the line. When we sin and, and reject the Lord, what happens is there's a hole in the line and the ranks have to be closed by those still seeking and serving the Lord. Folks, don't be that weak spot. Don't be that weak spot, brother. Don't be that weak spot, sister. Hold your part of the line. Don't go AWOL. Don't fail to obey orders from God. Don't fail to do your part. But when you mess up, repent and get back on track. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. 
Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.